You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. As some of you know, Dan and I have been taking a break so that way we could spend time with our families and practice our own much-needed self-care. If you're listening today, welcome to Season 2 of the Protecting Your Practice podcast. During our first season, we focused on interviewing experts who could help you crash your T's and dot your I's as a mental health practitioner. For Season 2, we'll be interviewing mental health practitioners who have valuable lived experiences to offer. They'll be talking about real situations that they've encountered, how they've handled them, and what they think other mental health practitioners can learn from their experience. They've been kind enough to talk with us so that others can learn from the situations they've faced. So to kick things off uh, in a new year, uh, Melissa and I thought, well, why not go big? (laughs) And really get someone a lot of people may know of um, and who would be fascinating to talk to. And so, so of course, here we are. Um, So today, Melissa and I are going to be talking with Joe Sanok. Uh, now, if you're a mental health practitioner or a therapist, um, you've probably heard of Joe. Um, you know, you know that he does a, a private practice. Um, you know that he does a podcast. But just in case, we want to just give you some information and give a nice intro for him. So he is the author of the book Thursdays New Friday: um, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend, spend Time Doing What You Want. Um, it examines the four-day work week, both creativity and Boost Creativity and Productivity. Um, Joe is also uh, the author of Thursday. um, I'm sorry, I apologize. I'm going through my notes here. Um, He also uh, has been someone who's been featured on Forbes, Good Magazine, Smart Passive Income Podcast. He's a host of the popular The Practice of the Practice podcast, which is what everyone probably really knows. Um, He's been recognized as top 50 podcaster worldwide um, with over 100,000 downloads each month. Obviously, he's a best-selling author himself. He's interviewed over 700-plus podcasts. Um, he's done over the last nine years. So uh, that's quite a mouthful. Uh, and even I was trying to make sure I covered everything, and I struggled a bit to get it all. Um, and that, that's just super impressive. But um, I truly appreciate you're here, Joe. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I love the show. So during our first season um, of the Protecting Your Pro practice podcast, Dan and I talked a lot about how some people have a tendency to say, yes, well, I'm not really concerned about that. What's the chance that this situation might happen? Um, And because of that, they might not take the steps that might help them better protect their practice. So this time around, we really wanted to interview mental health practitioners who have been there, done that, and have learned some really important lessons. And while Dan and I were at Killing It Camp, you shared a story about one of your early experiences, and I thought this is exactly the type of experience we're talking about. So I'm glad that you've agreed to talk with us. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I still remember the moment when my cell phone rang. I was working at the community college, and uh, that was my full-time job, and I had my side counseling practice going. And as part of that, I had gone through the supervision training in Michigan, and uh, so had launched this really great event uh, around supervision. And I got this phone call and it was from this guy, Jerry, and I will never forget his first words. And he said, 
the attorney, the assistant attorney general brought up your name and it was not good. And I about crapped my pants in that moment going, why does the assistant attorney general know who Joe Sanok is? I, what have I done? So he proceeded to tell me uh, that an event that I was putting on, the attorney general thought fell outside of the scope of practice in Michigan. So rewind a couple months. Uh, I recognized that there was a major problem in Michigan. So at the time, uh, supervision for limited licensed professional counselors, so LLPCs in Michigan. Um, so your first typical two years of licensure, other, licensure in other states, sometimes it's called intern, sometimes it's called pre-license. Um, so limited license status in Michigan, had all of that supervision had to be done face-to-face. You couldn't do it on Zoom, couldn't do it on Skype. You could do it over ham radio. Like according to the law, uh, which <laughs> is ridiculous. Like you're talking clinical supervision over ham radio. Like how many people can listen to that? You could do that, but you couldn't do it over Skype. So what I had witnessed in the in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, uh, which is a very rural area, is people would often drive an hour and a half to two hours weekly to go have an hour supervision with someone and then drive back. So either agencies were paying for this five hours of driving, or an individual was paying for this. So to me. There is an ethical side to this as well, that the law didn't keep up with the kind of digital side of things, the practicality, but they were hard-nosed about this face-to-face, in-person supervision for your 100 hours of supervision. So as a way to combat what I saw as an ethical issue, as well as meet a need, I decided to host a a two-day conference uh, where people would get uh, 24 hours. They would get two 12-hour days of supervision. Uh, we were going to just rock it out. We were going to do that twice a year. Uh, and then we would get pretty darn close to that 100 hours and then just have a couple extra hours beyond that. So uh, I thought, hey, if they have to drive down to Traverse City, which is a tourist town, they come down twice a year. I support them between things. The intent of supervision, as long as I'm available via telephone, is, is being met. There was nothing on the books that said you know, how it had to be. It doesn't say weekly, doesn't say monthly, doesn't say anything like that. So you know, I, I tried to follow the letter of the law. So this guy, Jerry, who sat on the ethics board of Michigan, the counseling ethics board with the assistant attorney general, uh, the story that he told me was that the assistant attorney general said, I see that Joe Sanok up in your area uh, is hosting a supervision conference. Uh, this is supposed to be ongoing supervision, uh, not uh, a two-day event. Uh, we're going to uh, bring him in front of the ethics board uh, unless you... No, that's all he said. That's all what the attorney general said or assistant attorney general said. And then Jerry, out of the kindness of his heart, uh, said, let me talk to him. If I just have him refund everybody and pull down the webpage, would that be good enough so that there's not an ethics violation on his record? And so he basically said... Um, you can take this down and refund everybody, or you're going to have to make your case in front of the ethics board. And of course, I don't want to appear in front of any ethics board ever. Uh, so, you know, I refunded all the money, uh, took down the webpage within minutes. Uh, and then um, luckily the case stopped. And every time I hear that story, I can feel myself reacting, imagining that phone call. Oh my God. Every time that guy called, every time Jerry called me, even about because I was the president of the licensed professional counselors of Northern Michigan for a while, anytime my phone rang and it said his name, I got that like pit in my stomach butterflies. Like, oh no, what else have I done? (laughs) But nothing else came up. As an attorney (laughs) working with practitioners, I've gotten those emails. Oh. Yeah. The best part part is when emails I get and the person says, so 
this happened. And I'm like, that's never a good sign. <laughs> and then I just know it's going to go downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. So I hear you have this creative idea. You saw a problem, right? And so you came up with this really creative solution. And then you got this terrible phone call, right? And so you were like, okay, I'm going to do this, this thing. So I'm complying. I don't want any issues, right? We all want our name to be known, but primarily for like the good things. And I hear saying, <laughs> I didn't want them to know me for that. Um, so, and I know that you came up with some creative solutions to that as well. In addition to just saying, okay, I'll do the thing to not, you know, have any problems. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So uh, I checked in with Jerry first with my idea just to say, like, would this be considered consistent? Because that was the big word that the assistant attorney general said was the consistent supervision. Uh, and so I said, like, how does the ethics board think about that? And he said, just don't do it twice a year. Don't have it be months and months. Uh, so uh, I didn't, didn't ask any extra follow-up questions because I, I thought, you know, the more I, I don't know, I tend to be a person that doesn't ask for permission. I like just kind of proceed until apprehended. So that's not always the best legal or uh, way to do it, but I do feel like we've been able to launch some pretty badass products by doing that. Uh, so the supervision that I structured was, uh, for one, in Michigan, there's no cap to the amount of people you can have in a supervision group, which, I mean, I think from an ethical or best practices, like you know, having 50 people in a supervision group is not smart. <laughs> um, but you know, to just say, okay, there's nothing legally in regards to capping it, and it doesn't actually specify, it just says regular supervision. Uh, and so I structured out that once a month we would meet for four hours, uh, that uh, the price would be based in the group on how many people were there. Uh, so I always knew I would make the same amount and there'd be some social pressure to show up uh, if you signed up for supervision. And so the cheapest prices was if there were six people or more. So at that time it was $30 per person, six people or more. $30 a person. And then it like went up for that. So that I'd be always making that upper hundreds. And for me at that time, that was an amazing rate to be making. Um, I had uh, up to eight people in that group. Uh, and I also gave away the first half hour of it. So we actually did a four and a half hour supervision. Uh, and the first half hour was free if you stayed until the end. So you'd get four and a half hours paying for four. They knew the, the um, amount they typically pay, you know, would be $120 a month for this, which you know, for supervision outside of an agency was a really great price. I knew that with six people, you know, I'm making about a grand a month, you know, off of this four hour sprint. Um, but then I kept getting more and more people that wanted to do it. And so we actually doubled the size of the group to 16. And I hired another supervisor who didn't want to do his own marketing for 50 bucks an hour. So now I'm paying him $200 once a month. And I just doubled the amount that I could make. Uh, so did that. Uh, and then every spring in April, we would host a, an event where uh, it was called the Path to LPC. Uh, and it was an event that I was a yacht club member, so we could use the yacht club for free. So it felt super bougie. Uh, all of these grad students that were at the you know middle or end of their program got to come. I bought all the rounds of drinks. So the yacht club was happy because, you know, we're, you know, I was spending, you know, I think we'd have 20 or 30 grad students that came and got free drinks. I'd get a bunch of fancy food and salamis and cheeses and, you know, kind of like fancy hors d'oeuvres. Um, and we would have a networking time where we could just kind of talk with current LLPCs. Uh, and then we had sort of a formal half hour Q&A. And the Q&A was all about that bridge between grad school and getting your full license. And it was amazing how few people, even being in their final semester, even knew in Michigan, 
you have to fill out paperwork. You don't just automatically get your LLPC. You have to have a supervisor. You have to have a professional disclosure statement. These things that they were like, what? Uh, and so it became a highly valuable transition that then the uh, professors were referring to saying, you've got to go to the path to LPC meeting every year. And then I'd have everyone sign in. We'd do like giveaways if you signed in uh, and you know, put your name and email down. But then every year I would fill up that supervision group again with 16 more people, 16 more people. So uh, at that time, it became a great way to fill up a supervision group, still fall within the letter of the law and the intent of the law, um, and to not have the assistant attorney general like have me on their radar. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering if in all of that, right, because this is kind of in, this was an innovative idea that you came up with. Uh, and we're always thinking about like, how can other people benefit from this experience? What, what can other people learn? Um, so essentially, you came up with this innovative idea, you are creating a solution to an issue. And I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for other people who might be listening, who have this innovative idea, there's this thing that they want to do, but there's nobody else doing that thing. I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for them based on this experience or just your experience doing other innovative projects as well. Yeah, I think first I'd say let your crazy ideas just come out. Like so often we kill ideas before we even share them with somebody or write them down. And you say, oh, that's too crazy. Uh, right when I started my counseling practice, uh, mental wellness counseling, um, I had this idea of, okay, like dinner in a movie is kind of a boring date. Uh, you know, like we're going to just, eat and stare and maybe chat with each other and then go stare at a screen. We stare at screens all the time. That's stupid. Um, what if we had dinner in a counseling session? Uh, and so I went and talked to a local restaurant owner and said, here's my idea. You know, I want to make sure it's HIPAA compliant in the, the gift cards people get um, that you can't tell that it came from me. Um, I want to be able to buy a $50 gift card, which at these restaurants at the time would, would get most of like the basic entrees, you know, um, so a $50 gift card, I want to be able to get it for, you know, 40 or $45. Um, you know, I'll guarantee that I'll buy five of them. Um, and then like, if I want more, I can still do it at that rate. They're like, sure. So I sent out a press release and it got crazy media over it. I mean, people were just clamoring to talk about dinner in a counseling session. Um, uh, like what did it mean? So I sold it for a hundred dollars for the first one where they got a $50 gift card and then their first couple's session. Um, they didn't have to even do the dinner and counseling session at the same time. Uh, so I probably had five solid media appearances from it, including local radio, local um, newspaper, the local business news, women's, uh, there's a Traverse City women's magazine. Um, so awesome media, but I only had one couple buy it. They came probably for 10 sessions. So, I mean, it was a good, at the time, $1,200 couple. Um, but the media, I bet I had 30 or 40 of my friends over the next month say, dinner and a counseling session? What the heck? So it positioned me as being innovative as a practice owner. And I think sometimes we we just do the bottom line finances. Like, was that a good idea? I only had one couple that did it. And then you feel like a failure or whatever. If nobody had bought it and I just got a bunch of free media around dinner and a counseling session, and I was known as the dinner and a counseling session therapist, that would have been enough. Um, I would have had you know $250 worth of gift cards to use. So, so I think that we we sometimes first we we stifle our ideas, um, then we often don't go crazy enough with them, uh, and then we don't go into it without worrying about the outcome. And so that's I think a thing that you know to test things out, try things out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, as long as you don't have too much money and time wrapped up into it, 
move on to the next idea. Just try something else. Then when I, I would say when things work, look to see if you can buy the URL for it. So I bought llpcsupervision.com. I bought michigancounselingsupervision.com. Um, I ended up selling that um, that uh, supervision group to the guy I was paying 50 bucks an hour to because I didn't want to do supervision. So these opportunities of low-hanging fruit, I think we often miss as well. Yeah. And that's really interesting. I'm smiling here because I remember either reading or hearing about that program when you offered it. Um, you know, but I'm also thinking about perception versus reality, right? I remember either reading about this or hearing about it on your podcast and thinking like, oh, wow, that's a really cool program. That was a really cool idea. Um, but had I known like, oh, there was only one couple, right? Um, you know, so outwardly, it looks like, wow, what a great idea. And even though maybe it wasn't a program that you continued, you did get a lot of attention. It sounds like it was valuable in that way. And you said, all right, maybe this isn't the thing I want to continue. Um, and I know you've done a lot of other really creative projects as well. I think it was um, like a sailing program that you've done. So there are a number of really innovative programs that I imagine took a lot of behind the scenes work to arrange and put all of the pieces together. Yeah. So the sailing program uh, was one of the first therapeutic sailing programs in the nation. So uh, the way that came about was uh, the Maritime Heritage Alliance, which is a uh, nonprofit here in Northern Michigan. Um, they had been gifted a uh, Concordia cutter that's 60 feet long, uh, which is uh, a Concordia cutter is a replica of an 1800s uh, wooden schooner, uh, the only replica of which the Kennedy family owns. So they were given this ship and said, you have to use it for some sort of teen program. Uh, so then I said, I think it should be a therapy program. I'll take care of the whole therapeutic arm. Here's how much I want to get paid per week to do it. I'll write the grants. And if the money doesn't come in, then you don't have to hire me. Um, so Traverse City, we luckily have the richest Rotary Club in the world because they struck oil on their land like 50 years ago. So Rotary Charities has millions of dollars that is invested in then all the interest goes towards grants. So uh, I wrote a $90,000 innovation grant for three years that then um, could help with some of you know the, the legal side, the um, like having a captain, um, some of the repair of the boat, um, and then the marketing to different groups. So yeah, I think that it's just, you know, finding things that are interesting to me. Um, you know, I liked it for five years and every summer got paid to sail and do therapy on a sailboat. And then, you know, at a certain point I realized, you know, that's not what I wanted to do anymore that I wanted to do more practice, the practice things, wanted to do more podcasts and that's okay too. Yeah. And so really I hear letting yourself try new things, see how they go and, um, and knowing that there might be a season for them. Absolutely. And I think that I remember my dad said to me, when you're good at something, uh, people will always be bummed when you level up into something else. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I, when I left the upper peninsula, you know, the nonprofit I worked at was like, we have so few young male therapists. What are the kids going to do? It's like, not that it's not my problem, but it's kind of not my problem. You know, like you have the nonprofit in the upper peninsula. That doesn't mean I have to live there forever. Or, you know, when I did supervision to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to be wrapping up supervision at the end of this year and Paul's you know, purchasing the supervision group and he's going to be taking over. Uh, you know, People signed up because they wanted my private practice advice. They wanted me and that's a bummer to them. But I had young kids. I didn't want to work once a month for four and a half hours in the evening. That just wasn't where I was at anymore. And you know, I was doing really well with consulting and I had outgrown the financial commitment that I had made to keeping it cheaper. So, so when you're good at things and you're leveling up, like you will bum people out when you level up and you then can serve newer audiences. Like I couldn't have done a keynote for Nissan Infinity Canada 
had I not let go of those things. You know, that's an opportunity that came through writing this book, through leveling up, making those connections. Those kind of things don't just emerge if you can't put in that dedicated time to it. Well, and the other thing is, is that, you know, what's fascinating and what's been amazing to watch with you is you're a perfect example, in my opinion, when I'm talking to clients, you know, about their mental health practices, is that it's a business mindset, right? It's not just a clinical mindset. You have a business mindset. And, you know, that's one of the things that when I'm talking to practitioners, when they say, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, you know, in addition to clinical work, I'm like, okay, great. But you need to start thinking beyond the clinical office now. Like you are a business owner. You are a business owner. You need to be looking at business opportunities um, and thinking out of the box. Um, and that's not something that always comes natural um, for many people. Um, that's something you have to learn how to do it, or you can just, some people are naturally good at it, but most people have to learn how to do it. Um, and so it's fascinating to hear you talk about this because that this is a perfect example, I think, for practitioners of what it looks like when you have someone who's business-focused, who's focused on how do I grow the business side of what I want to do? It's not just about the clinical anymore. Yeah, I think that's such a good point because so often therapists have given themselves a job, not a business. If they don't show up, they don't get paid. If their kid's sick, they don't get paid. If they go on vacation, not only does that vacation cost a few thousand dollars, but they also lose a few thousand dollars in income for that week. So then they don't go on vacation. So like that's a job. If you don't get paid when you don't work, like that's a job. Uh, one of my closest friends, uh, he became a multimillionaire before he graduated high school. He started this website that just like exploded. Um, and he, for years, has just pushed into me when I had an idea, I'd run it by him. And he'd say, like, it's not scalable. Like, it's still based on human capital. Even if I'm hiring humans, it's still limited by humans. And so even just thinking about scalability in practices, sure, like you can do a group practice, but what are things you can add before someone ever comes into your practice? Like an e-course. So say someone's going to come in for parenting help in six months. And right now they have some need. Like, what would you wish that they came to therapy? What tools should they come to therapy with? So if you were doing e-course, the work is done all other than promoting it and getting people to, to come to it. And so it could be just for your clients, but it also could be for thousands of other people. Say so you charge 99 bucks a month and 100 people buy it. That's a huge chunk of revenue for you. Um, and then on the other side of therapy, like, what are those things that if someone leaves therapy that they need over the next six months or a year. You know, could that be a mastermind group? Could it be a membership community? Could it be just a Zoom call talking about parenting skills? So yeah, they've graduated from counseling. Maybe they just want a, a check-in with, with other clients. And you obviously have all the legal paperwork saying, you know, we're going to have confidentiality. And then what are those skills that you have that the rest of the world needs? More and more, as I interview people outside of the counseling field, especially people that are doing business consulting with C-suite levels with Fortune 100 companies, the skills they're teaching are active listening, reflecting back emotions, helping you know mine for data in people's brains, and asking just leading questions to get good information out, and then summarizing it. Like the skill set that we have intuitively and from our training is the skill set that corporate America wants right now and has very deep pockets. So there's so many opportunities right now. It's more. Where is your curiosity leading you? What are you interested in? Like, how much money do you want to make? And what are those limiting mindsets that get in the way of doing those things? One of the things that, and this is true for all industries, it doesn't matter. It's not just clinicians, but, but one of the things that I think I see in clinicians is that when something doesn't work or something doesn't go right, well, that's it. That's, then it's time to do something else. You know, it's, and it's what your, your point you said very early on 
when we were talking about the law not catching up with um, what you wanted to do. The truth is, I will tell you as an attorney working in mental health space, that happens all the time. And it doesn't necessarily mean that your idea is a bad one, or there aren't ways of doing it. Um, and I, I remember once I read something that said that every uh, mistake that you make is not a step backwards, it's not a failure. It's in fact a step forward. Because what you do with that mistake and what you learn from it and how you then take the next step, that's what's going to lead to your success. Um, and I think so many clinicians sometimes when they want to do what you're talking about, they counter an obstacle. They say, okay, this is not working. I guess this is not for me. No, it's that you just need to find another way around that obstacle. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that also looking at what is working. Uh, so I, I was in a mastermind group uh, that John Lee Dumas was running and, you know, there's a handful of us in there and we, I got to do a hot seat with him. So John Lee Dumas has entrepreneur on fire and kind of through that process, got to know him and um, get just anyway. So he was talking about how, if we can raise the bar so high that the competition can't keep up, you're just going to out, outrank the competition. So he did that with a seven day a week business show, just crazy amount of content. And so looking at, we just worked with a consultant that looked at practice, the practice top to bottom, did a bunch of interviews with our, our pay, paying clients and kind of came back and said, the podcast, Joe's podcast, we have 17 others that we manage, um, but Joe's podcast is one of the biggest lead acquisition strategies you have. Like people know it, they love it, they listen to it. It's where your numbers are. It's the thing that gets people onto email lists. And eventually when they're on that email list, they you know, end up joining one of our membership communities or consulting or whatever they end up needing support around. And so, you know, in the past, when we had a podcast sponsor reach out and say, hey, you know, can we, can we be a sponsor? We'd say, sorry, we're full. We do a two-day-a-week show. And then last year, we added a third show. Uh, but just in early 2022, we had another sponsor come back and say, you know, we got such good results from the last round of sponsorship, and we want to buy another 12 episodes. And I wouldn't have been, if I said three days a week is all we can do, all the capacity I have, they wouldn't have been able to get until July, and that's not what they wanted. And so to be able to be agile and say, well, for one, the podcast by itself is a good lead acquisition strategy. It's good content. I enjoy it. I have fun meeting all these people. But to now say, okay, we're now going to do four episodes a week. I'm now getting paid for that from the sponsor. But then also that's helping us get more people on the email list and other things. And so to find those areas that are working and double down and triple down, in our case, quadruple down. Um, and say, well, we're going to just keep doing now four episodes a week. Um, we may get to seven episodes a week. We may do you know, micro episodes. There's lots of opportunity there. Mm -hmm. But to say what's really working and let's do more of that, I think a lot of therapists just don't even think that way. Yeah. Well, and earlier you were talking about following your curiosity and just kind of paying attention to some of the things that you talk about and put out there. You've definitely demonstrated that you do that with all of the many things that you've been involved in. Um, but it also sounds like with following your curiosity, it also means that sometimes you have to let things go either because it's not working or because, you know, maybe the passion isn't there anymore. And on some level, it sounds like letting those things go comes, it sounds like kind of easy for you. I know for myself, I'm, I'm typically a little bit different. I'm like, oh, but I want it to work. Um, and so I'm wondering, what is it that helps you personally let some things go or know when it's time to let go in order to move on to something else? Yeah. So we walk through a pretty clear process when we're launching a new product. Uh, and to me, I think it's important to do experimentation with things um, to see if there's a market for it or to really kind of test it before you put time into it. So uh, for example, uh, people that bought 
10 copies of Thursday is the new Friday, we're able to get into a mastermind group in November and early December um, and brought in some experts um, on different topics around leveling up. So I brought in um, my uh, agent for my book. I brought in my writing coach. I brought in Pat Flynn from um, Smart Passive Income. Uh, so brought people in, but then also they were in small groups and people started saying like, what's next after this? This is only six weeks. Like, what are we going to do? So we went through our three questions to ask process. So it's around first, the pain someone's going through next, what's their ideal product. And then third, what's the price they would pay. So I, in every phase I'm trying to decide, is this an idea worth pursuing? So I sent out a Calendly link, um, to all of the Thursdays, the new Friday mastermind group and said, uh, I want to do a 15 minute call with anyone that wants to, to go through that three questions to ask process I talk about in the book. We're going to talk about what it's, what's it been like um, to level up and to launch a product and um, to build an audience and all those things is like the pain of it. What's your ideal product and how much would you pay for it? So very open and honest. This is not a sales pitch. It's just me getting information. So did uh, 14 of those interviews with people, walked through it, found the commonalities, um, then said, here, here's what you know, did a, a webinar saying, here's all the data I got from all of you. Here's the common talking points around the pain, the product, and the price. Um, so here's what we've created. So we launched Audience Building Academy. We bought audiencebuildingacademy.com and audiencebuilding.academy. So we had both the URLs. You know, it's a $650 to $1,500 a month program for six months. So then do this webinar, see how many people sign up for it. Do then it was with that group. Then we go to our next audience, which are people that have already bought things from us. So people that have come to Killing It Camp, they've come to Slow Down School, they're in next level practice, they're in group practice, boss, and say, I'm doing this webinar. I'm going to be reporting out this case study that I did, show publicly what it looks like, and then offer you a chance to join it. So it's not a big sales pitch, it's saying, if this is a fit, great. And then launching that to the rest of the email list. So we've got 20,000 ish people on the email list, you know, saying, here's the webinar. So at every phase, I'm looking at, like, did this sell? Did people show up? So if nobody showed up for the initial phone call from the group that wants this product, like that tells me there's probably not a market for it. If then that group who just told me, this is how I feel, this is what I want, this is what I pay, and then I do that, and then they don't buy, there's a disconnect there. In mm -hmm. some way, like they may be saying that they want this, but when it's time to pull out their credit card, they're not paying $650 a month for six months or $1,500 a month for six months. Uh, then when I go to our kind of most loved customers, the ones that have already given us money, they've done consulting, they're in our membership communities. If they don't buy, well, that, that's maybe I'm not even going to then pitch it to the regular audience because it's just, I can kill it at that point. So now, you know, right now uh, we're in the middle of, we have one more webinar for Audience Building Academy. Um, we sold six spots, which makes it like that's financially works for us. We have a total of 20 spots in that. So then we're going to launch it to our regular audience. So we know that we're going to do that six months. After that six months, we want to then test it and say, you know, did you get what you wanted out of this? Did you build your audience? Did you define your niche, write your email uh, sequence? Did you get top media? Were you on three podcasts? So we have very clear outcomes. And then if, if these people say, no, that totally sucked. I hated it. You, you didn't deliver. Well, then I'm going to have to make that right, either by a refund or by you know, giving them free consulting. Or they say, that blew my mind. Then I'll say, okay, can I have a testimonial? <laughs> can you like show up on a webinar to talk about your experience? And then we can sell it again to somewhere else. So I'm trying to kill an idea before I put too much time or effort into it to say, first, do people even like this idea? Will they show up? Will they pull out their credit card? Then you know, when they do, do they like it? And if so, testimonials. If not, 
I got to make it right. So for me, there's so little ego wrapped up in it. It's all an experiment saying, right. hey, this is working or it didn't. You know, is there overlap between what I can offer and what I need to get paid and what they want and what they're willing to pay? If there's not overlap, that means you don't make a sale. If there is overlap, then you typically will make a sale. So when you just look at it like that, it's a lot easier for me to just let things go and to say, okay, it wasn't a fit or what they want. They want six months of my time and they're only willing to pay a hundred bucks. There's no way I'm going to do that versus, okay, 1500 a month with, you know, six people. That's a lot of money. And I can really then have my team support them during that time so that they can get out of it what they want to get out of it. Yeah. And the one thing that I'm thinking about as you're, as you're talking about that is one, how easily you just, you know, spout that out, like, well, this is our process and this is what we do. Um, and certainly a lot of people who are in private practice have heard about you. They know about your work. And I think sometimes when someone is well known for what they do, it might lead people to think that what they do is easy or getting there must have been easy, right? And I think the story that you shared in the beginning about supervision is a reminder that like these things have challenges happen and they happen to everybody. Um, but I guess I'm wondering for anyone who might think, oh, it must be easy or must have always been easy. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. There's plenty of times where I look at our numbers and say, you know, we're putting out such great content. Why the heck don't we have millions of people listening? Like, look at how many therapists are in you know, the world. Like, why, why doesn't everybody listen? Why aren't they opting into our email sequence? This is going to help them. Uh, like, just wanting to kind of, whoa, I just punched my microphone. <laughs> wanting, <laughs> wanting, to, wanting to just like help society and feeling like when people are in our ecosystem, they are like, this blows my mind. I wish I had done this years ago. There's still times when I'm like, why the heck are people not signing up? Like, and then we have to test. I have to pull my ego out of it and say, my self-worth doesn't come from this. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a stoic meditation. It's called the ideal life uh, meditation. Um, and the idea is that you, you just sit and you think about who would love to have your life with all the crap that's happening. Like who would kill to have your life? And I was doing this, um, you know, over the last year, I've been going through an uncoupling and then divorce. And I am the primary parent now. I have uh, legal custody of my kids. So an unexpected single parent. And I remember in the thick of it, before the divorce was final, didn't know how the finances would shake out. I, I was sitting in my hot tub meditating on this thinking, okay, like who would love my life? I'm like, okay, I'm sitting in a hot tub. Let's just start with that. Uh, <laughs> I live two blocks from you know a, a bay from Lake Michigan that has 20% of the world's clean water. Uh, I live in the United States and have a great business. And it's like, okay, there are many people that would say, I would love to be in the middle of an uncoupling. Uh, I would love to have kids. I would love to be that close to fresh water and have access to that level of finances. You know, I bet you know, two thirds of the world would love to would say, I would love to be Joe Sanok. I would love to have that life. And, and so to just say for most of us, life is good. Even when it's terrible and it's hard and things hit the fan, like we've hit the lotto. Uh, even just thinking about our generation compared to four generations ago, like what a great time to be alive. Even when it hits the fan and you're an unexpected single dad and you know your daughter was in quarantine last week, like life is still pretty dang amazing for us. Yeah, I uh, my wife actually made that point to me recently. Was we were talking about the practice, you know, my practice as a lawyer and stuff like that. And one of the things that she pointed out was that, to your point, 
the opportunities and the te- way technology is now, the way things are now, there's so much more opportunity to do what you want to do, whether it's you want to work from home remotely, you want to you know, run an office at your house. There's hundreds of different ways of doing things now that, like you said, four generations ago, if you were going to open up a business, there's a certain way you had to do it. And it's the only way it was going to work. The way you were going to market or public, publicize your business was only a certain way you were going to do it. And that was, how it was, how you, that was what was available to you. And nowadays, in today's world, there's so many different ways of doing it. There's so many different opportunities and technology that's available to do however you want to do it. I think that's such a, a great point that it's easy to forget to be grateful for what you do have. Um, you know, I, and for me personally, I would tell you that this pandemic and having to be at home with a six-year-old or four-year-old <laughs> at time for a year uh, was stressful and, and, and at times very trying, but also really taught me to be aware and grateful for what we do have yeah i'm, I'm reading michael pollan's uh, new book uh this is your brain on plants and uh the middle section of it's all about caffeine and i didn't realize that it wasn't until 1650 that uh caffeine that tea and coffee even made its way to western civilization and then you know back then you know water was so bad that people would start drinking beer at breakfast and basically be drunk all day long like so, just the fact that we can have a cup of coffee for most of human history is mind blowing. Like we're so productive, we're so healthy. Uh, you know, just less than three hundred, you know, three hundred fifty plus years ago, uh, they didn't even have coffee. Right. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> we all know the value of coffee. Yeah. So. Just one more question that I had for you. We, we will get some information from you in a minute about how people can um, get in touch with you. But one of the things is um, Dan was mentioning trying new things. Um, you know, I think you are someone who clearly tries new things regularly. Um, and the new things that you try require you to put yourself out there. And putting yourself out there is certainly a vulnerable process. And many people do not put themselves out there, do not try new things because it's really scary. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what allows you to regularly try new things and to put yourself out there and, and any feedback you'd have had for anybody who struggles in those ways. Yeah, I would say for one, just start somewhere, no matter how small it is, when you try something new, uh, that learning process just teaches you so many skills, whether it's just the value of practicing something over and over or uh, feeling good for yourself. So like I've been learning um, a, a song from Encanto just to impress my kids uh, you know, <laughs> on the piano. Uh, so I, I've been slowly learning piano, you know, over the last few years. We don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> no, we don't talk about Bruno. Uh, no, it's actually the under the surface uh, song. So under the surface, uh, but man, we don't talk about Bruno. That is an earworm. Oh my gosh. It was just out of my head. And now it's rolling in again. Um, but, but I mean, you know, so to, to learn piano or, you know, I've taken up watercolor painting over the last year and I love how watercolors, you have an idea and then the water just does its own thing. And so it's like, it's like an extra partner of chaos within an art project that I haven't experienced in like acrylics or oil paintings. Uh, or I joined an improv group a couple of years ago. Uh, and we have an improv performance on Monday and, uh, we haven't had a performance since last summer and like, I'm getting nervous about it. Improv is one of those things that it's like a tightrope walk where it could be awesome. It could be an S show. It could be somewhere in between, but like, it is what it is. And it's an experience that just that audience gets to have with you. And so to be like, some of my friends are coming and 
I don't want to look ridiculous in front of my friends uh, and not do a good job. But like the more I'm in my head about that, the more I'm not going to be good at improv. And Mm so uh, finding just those things that push my limits of, of comfort and my limits of abilities outside of work, I think sure it has ancillary benefits to the work i do inside of practice the practice but to do it just for its own sake so improv we practice every single wednesday i laugh so hard i don't need an ab workout on thursday like i hurt uh, and it's for the purpose of that presence in laughter that presence in ridiculousness you know we're in our in my garage you know wearing masks you know sort of outside in northern michigan doing improv and my neighbors hear us like singing and laughing. They got to be like, what the heck is going on in his garage? Uh, but it's like those things live in my life. They give my life more color. They give my life, you know, an HD level that maybe, you know, the average person doesn't get to have. And, and when we do those new things, uh, it just makes life what it's supposed to be. And that's exciting and fun and weird and, and just you're being different than maybe what uh, we would have lived if we didn't try something new. Now, for anyone who's listening, who's wanting to know how they can get in touch with you, how can they find you? Yeah. So uh, we're everywhere on social media. Just type in practice of the practice uh, for all of the practice related things. Practice of the practice is the main hub. Uh, if you're starting a practice or growing a practice, we have a free e-course over at pillarsofpractice.com. So we interview all sorts of experts. We have these, what they're called eight minute experts. We set a timer. They only get eight minutes to tell us all their best tips. So it's super focused. So that's totally free over at pillarsofpractice.com. Uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, the practice, the practice podcast is on there, but we also have the uh, grow a group practice podcast. We have the marketing a practice podcast. We also have the faith and practice podcast um, and uh, 17 other podcasts that are on the practice, the practice podcast network. And I know that you came out with a new book because as you're talking book four, I was like, where does Joe have time for all of this? He's doing all of these things, but, but at the same time, you did just write out a new book. The cover has a clock on it. And so I'm wondering if you can also mention a little something about your new book. Yeah. So the book is called Thursday is the new Friday. Uh, it's been great. It's been getting a lot of media attention. I'm doing a second Harvard Business Review article. Um, it was trending on CNBC above an AOC article, which <laughs> blew my mind. Uh, and uh, so it's all about the four-day work week, uh, why it's better for society, creativity, uh, and productivity. Uh, and I would say to me, the big point of the book is that I believe we can do better than 2019. You know, the year before the pandemic, is that the best we can do in regards to our mental health, in regards to our ideas, our work stress, or can we do better than that? I believe the pandemic undid the final vestiges of the industrialist complex uh, and that we can do better than that. We can have different ways that we work. We can have creativity. We can have diversity. And we have a ton of challenges ahead of us in the next 10 or 20 years. We have more pandemics, potentially. We have global warming. We have um, inequality in the world. We have so many social issues that if we're going to address these issues, we need to be the most rested, productive, creative generation if we're going to get through these tough challenges that are ahead of us. And to me, the four-day work week is that next step in the evolution of business. I know it's not going to be the end, um, but it is the next step. And the book outlines the the research, uh, the anthropology, the history and case studies of how really large organizations and really small organizations have successfully implemented the four-day work week. Uh, You can 
search it anywhere. Also, joesanok.com has all the information about the book as well. I was going to say, you just type your name in Google and, you know, they're going to find you. Um, <laughs> A couple but, of things come up. That's true. <laughs> but, um, well, this has been great. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, as a reminder, just to everyone else listening, um, we are looking to talk to practitioners like yourselves who are listening right now. Um, and yes, I'm talking to you who's listening. Um, if you have a story about overcoming an obstacle um, or an issue in your practice um, and you want to be uh, share it with us, or if you'd be willing to share it with us, um, we do want to hear from you. Please go to our website, go to our Facebook page. Um, there's a quick form we'd ask you to complete, um, fill it out, and we'll be in touch with you. Uh, it's that simple. Um, so please do it. We want to hear from you. Um, otherwise, th that's it for us. We are so grateful for our guest today, for Joe. Um, we will talk to everyone soon. Um, thanks for, for everything and be well. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.